Hello, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was really fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we are continuing to support thought leadership in education. This episode is the second of a two-part conversation with Dr. Mark Brackett. As many of you know, Mark is the founding director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. In the first episode, Mark introduced us to his book, Permission to Feel. In today's show, he shifts to how educators can implement strategies outlined in his book directly into their classrooms and their schools. Hi, Mark. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us on the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be with you. We have already had a conversation about your book, Permission to Feel, and I I just want to tell you that I have heard so many people talking about that book and across a number of different sectors. And, you know, every once in a while, there's a book that is released that has a big impact on people. And so I just wanted to share that with you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. You know, in our first episode, we talk specifically about permission to feel, but there may be some people that are joining us now that didn't hear that first podcast. Mm-hmm. Just give me a, a sense of what was the main theme and why did you write the book? Well, I'm 51. I wrote the book when I was 49, and it was like my own birthday gift to myself for my 50th for that to come out. But I felt as if one, people were not aware of the science that people just didn't really understand why emotions mattered. I've had 25 years of running around the world trying to get people to talk about their feelings and a lot of resistance. And so what I wanted to do was make emotion science available to everybody. And the last thing I'll say about this is most of my work is in schools. And Mm -hmm. so we have this approach called Ruler where we reached our 3000 school this month. But I felt like you know, get a couple hundred more schools a year doing this work. And it was time to just get this to the masses. So here we are. I think that's such a smart approach. It's getting it to the masses. And you just described something. You put two words together that I'm not sure up until a few years ago that we would have ever heard those two words side by side. You called it emotion science. Mm -hmm. And up until a few years ago, there seemed to be two camps, whether, you know, we were thinking about mental health or whether we were thinking about education and learning. There was the emotional touchy-feely stuff on one side, and there was the science and the legitimate on the other side. And you do a really good job in that book of bringing those two concepts together. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, it's interesting you say that because a big part of my book and my goal in life is to help everyone become an emotion scientist. And so I contrast that with what most of us have grown up to become, which are emotion judges. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, most of us are pretty closed off to feelings. We judge people's feelings. Why are you so angry? Don't be sad. You know, you've got great things happening in your life. Why are you anxious? And those are just views of emotion that 
they're bad. Emotions are bad. They should be suppressed, denied, repressed. And if you know anything about emotion science, it's the opposite that's true, that when people learn how to use their emotions wisely, when they can learn to identify their feelings and understand their causes and label them with the precise words and have the ability to discern how and when to express emotions and have the strategies to regulate their feelings, great things happen. And so I feel it's almost like my moral obligation to ensure that people understand that emotion science. And that's part of what you bring to the table, Mark, because you've done such a good job of linking those two worlds together and making them accessible. And I'm thinking about educators and, you know, obviously my background has been in education. And what I found really interesting about a decade ago is that educators started talking about the link between well-being and learning. And there was always an underpinning of well-being. I mean, I think intuitively teachers and educators and people that are leading schools and districts knew that there was an important play there, but it was never talked about. And I think it's only been in the last decade that we've really tried to get better at knowing how those two spheres are interconnected. And what I found you and some of your colleagues have done a really good job with educators is helping us understand the science. We know intuitively that when you walk into a classroom and kids are happy and the teachers and the adults in the room are happy, good things are gonna happen for learning but I don't think we knew why. And your book helps to describe the science behind why are those two things connected. All right, so I have to make one little adjustment to what you said, if you don't mind. Absolutely. I wanna take the word happy, only because we can't be happy all the time, right? We've had trauma in our lives, we've had pandemics. And so, yes, we wanna experience more pleasant emotions than unpleasant emotions in life, clear. But one of the traps that I think, and I'm not saying that you fell into this, but a lot of people do, is this toxic positivity trap. Hmm. That I have to always tell my kids that I'm happy. I have to tell my students that they're happy. I have to pretend to be happy. And what messages that sends out are dangerous. You know, and they're, it's dangerous because what it says to kids is like, I really can't be my true fulfilling self if my teacher's goal is for me to be happy all the time. I'm an acute listener to these emotion terms just because of that's one example. And then the second is that the mindset of the adult is I have to deny myself my true feelings, right? And I have to pretend. And so what we also know from research, and this is a big one for teachers, I always say like, if there's one group of people that I like pray can learn this stuff. It's our kindergarten teachers, just because like they're paid to be happy all the time. <laughs> you know, high school teachers, they can show a little bit of, you know, being disgruntled. But, you know, those kindergarten teachers, my goodness, it's like, good morning, everybody. It's going to be a fabulous day. And, you know, many of them are like having fights with their own kids in the morning or partners or dogs or whatever it is. And there's this discrepancy, right, between what's shown on their faces and what they're actually feeling on the inside. And if you live for a long time with that discrepancy, which technically is called emotion labor, it just causes havoc on your immune system, you know, your mental health. And so there's that going back to that link between well-being and being, you know, a top performer. If we're constantly pretending to feel one way, but actually feeling another, it increases our burnout, 
decreases our well-being and in the end becomes a challenge. You know what, Mark, let's go deeper into this one. This is a classic example of podcast should be a conversation between two people. <laughs> and you know what? If I say something that needs to be realigned, then that's perfect, right? Did I do it in an emotionally intelligent way? <laughs> you did it in a lovely way because I'm actually willing to go further with this. And you make such a good point because I loved your ruler grid where it shows, you know, the different types of emotions. And one of the things that you talk about right at the beginning is that all emotions are important and that right. everyone should feel comfortable talking about all those motions and being in all those states and understanding how they can move along and how at certain times they're going to be in some of those different quadrants. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so the it's the technical term for our tool is called the mood meter. And it's based in rigorous science that essentially says that how we feel is a product of two core dimensions of being human. And the first axis is called the pleasantness axis. And essentially we wake up in the morning and we appraise our heads and our surroundings and say things like, is this going to be a good day, a bad day? Do I predict that I'm going to be safe in this environment, unsafe in this environment? All kind of around survival in many ways, right? And then on that y-axis is, do I have the resources? Do I feel energized or depleted? And so we put those two axes together to create the four quadrants. Yellow is high energy pleasant, right? That's the happiness group, the excitement group. Green, pleasant, but low in energy, the calm, content, tranquil. And then the blue and the red are our unpleasant feelings. But again, not bad, mm -hmm. not negative, just mm -hmm. unpleasant. Red being the ones that are activated, like anxiety and stress and anger. Blue being the less activated ones, like sadness and loneliness, despair. And so what's nice about that tool is, A, it represents the full range of emotions. B, I think it's a quite simple way of taking all the complexities that are going on inside of our brains and bodies. And like, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm all over the place. But are you in the yellow, red, blue, or green? Oh, that's it's only four choices I have to make. Actually, today's feeling pretty sunny and I'm energized. I'm in the yellow. Okay. Well, what's happening for you right now? What made you think that you're in the yellow? Oh, because I'm doing this great podcast with Jennifer. Oh, okay. So you're excited about having a conversation. Oh, so you're excited. All right. And so it's really a reflective process of going like, I got all this stuff going inside of me. I can like project it into these four quadrants and I can ask myself these questions about my emotional life. So what's causing that feeling? What's the word? And then I go into the E and the R of ruler, which is, okay, can I talk about it? Is it safe to talk about it? If I'm in that place, that's comfortable. Do I want to stay there? Or do I need to shift because I'm about to do something else? And that's the regulation piece. And so that's the mood meter. And super excited. We're actually releasing a new app for the mood meter coming very soon. It's going to be available for free across the world. And it's going to have all the skills and strategies built into it. Why do you think, Mark, that the book and the mood meter and the ruler approach, why have those been so widely accepted? You wrote the book just before the pandemic, if I remember correctly. 
And then the pandemic hit and the need and the interest for these kinds of tools, especially when educators are not able to connect directly with their students, they're doing it virtually, et cetera. Why do you think it's been, I mean, it's just astronomical in the way that people are looking for this type of support. Why do you think that is? Well, I think what's interesting talking about pandemic and emotional intelligence is that for a lot of people, they've gone through life thinking, you know, I'm fine, okay, busy. You know, they don't really think deeply about their feelings. And now people are living at home with their partners or alone. You know, I was living, my mother-in-law came to stay with us. I probably talked about that. You know, she was driving me out of my mind and I love her. But like, I didn't expect to live with her every day for seven months without me going off to work. You know, I mean, it's like, wait a minute. Like we have to cross each other in the hallways 10 times a day. We got to have meal time together. We got to like, who's going to watch what TV show at night? And it became difficult. And so I think a lot of people experience feelings, more feelings than they were used to in more intense ways during the pandemic. And I remember during these webinars that I would do, especially for dads and parents, I remember this one father saying, you know, Mark, I wasn't really that interested in emotional intelligence, but now I think I really need it. It's interesting because people don't have a place to run away anymore. You know, when you're you're in the pandemic and prior to the pandemic, you know, if you were having challenges or whatever, you could kind of run away from your feelings. You'd go to the office Mm -hmm. or you'd go and be with friends. But suddenly you're face to face with your feelings because you really don't have anywhere to go. You have to be dealing with them. 100%. That's my, so I didn't even, this one guy, he said to me, you know, Mark, I'm a lawyer. I'm a father. I'm now my son's tech coordinator. I'm also the cafeteria worker for the house. You know, like I got all these roles, like I got a lot of feelings. And so, you know, one of the things that we say about emotional intelligence that makes it unique from our traditional intelligence is that you only really know you got this skill when you're activated. Interesting. Because most of education is cognitive processing of information. Let me, let me separate from what education is from cognition. So cognitive processing is more cold processing of information. Like two plus two equals four. There's nothing, what we'll say is that you're not being provoked in a situation to come up with that answer. Whereas with emotional intelligence, If I am sitting with a colleague and we're just having a conversation where there's, where none, neither one of us is activated, right? We're just shooting the breeze. We're going back and forth, right? But then as soon as I get insulted or is, you know, all of a sudden, right? What happens? The emotion system kicks in, fight, flight, freeze mode, right? Who the blank do you think you are insulting me like that? You blank, blank. And it's in those moments that those cold cognitive areas are not that easily accessible. Right. And so what happens is that without proper training or education with your emotions, what happens, your emotions can get the best of you, go into survival mode, you retaliate, you know, you become an amphibian. So that's what I'm getting at here, which is that we don't necessarily appreciate the uniqueness of teaching emotion skills because they actually have to be taught in a different way than cognitive abilities. It reminds me, maybe you'll appreciate this with conflict. So for years, my colleague and I taught conflict resolution. No, we taught emotional intelligence in this leadership academy. 
and it was for aspiring principals of schools. And so just coincidentally, conflict resolution class came before emotional intelligence class. So they all thought they had learned all of these strategies on like their conflict styles and, you know, how to negotiate, blah, blah, blah. Then they come to my class and I would do role plays. And I, I would sometimes really go into my, you know, wannabe actor mode. And I would go, like, I'll do it with you right now. I'd say, you're the worst freaking superintendent I've ever met, right? And all of a sudden, these people would start crying and running out of the room. <laughs> I'm like, but wait a minute, you just got out of conflict resolution class. And it's because they weren't practicing when things got hot. Within context. Yeah. Yeah. And so putting all of this together, because I know we're all over the place right now, is that people during the pandemic have been put in a new context where their emotions are activated a lot. And they're like, wait a minute, where's my strategy? And they haven't learned the strategies and they haven't practiced strategies in these difficult times. And therefore, a lot of people are at a loss for kind of how to manage their feelings. And maybe that's a good thing in a way because it's making us talk about it. And, you know, we talked about at the beginning, this idea that, you know, you were working with so many schools and it was growing by a couple hundred schools each year to know that everyone basically globally is faced with this situation and they're having to adapt in this new environment. Everybody's looking for this and for this conversation. One of the things that I found interesting, Mark, with permission to feel is that you play on two levels. It's children's permission to feel and how do we create environments and schools that allow them to be able to express those feelings. It's equally important as important with the adults in those schools. And I found it really interesting. I'm I'm on um, the board of governors for the Ottawa Hospital and we were having a presentation and the vice president of human resources was talking about this wonderful initiative that they were going to be putting through the hospital and that it was by this incredible guy named Dr. Mark Brackett. And, you know, right afterwards, Renee and I were talking and I said, you know, I do work with him. And it's just really interesting that you've got a health sector that is very focused on this. You've got education K to 12 that's very focused on that. I'm sure you have businesses and industry that's focused on that. And that's where it's going to start to change, right? When a child is coming through and it's everything from their home environment to their school environment to their part-time job environment, people are conscious and trying to think more about being able to express feelings and know what they are, to name them, to be able to act upon them, et cetera. That's where we're going to get to that scalability. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I think in many ways, some of the changes in education came from businesses saying, we need people that have these kinds of skills to run companies and to manage teams. And then all of a sudden we kick in and start thinking, okay, what do we need to do to help create students or build students' capacities in these spaces? And from my perspective, the only way to make real change is to infuse these principles into the immune system of a nation, of a world. So we get so narrowly focused oftentimes, like this is the teacher's job or the parent's job. It's everybody's job, right? It's like kindness, right? It's everybody's job to be kind. And so think about it. The way our theory of change, for lack of a more academic way of talking about things, asserts that there's four kind of components of this work. There's kind of the mindsets, beliefs aspects of it. So like you asked me in the beginning, what's emotion science and what's an emotion judge? Well, obviously 
from the perspective of permission to feel. It's like, what do we need to do to get everybody to believe that feelings matter? The second is, okay, so what are these skills that help us to use our feelings wisely, which is the ruler skills and emotional intelligence? The third is that these skills are all in context, in systems, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's like this idea, you know, that drives me out of my mind, which is, you know, like it's the kids, it's the individual's job to figure it out. Think about how unfair, unfair is an even better way. I was going to say uninformed that thinking is, you know, in regard to child development. Of course. Doesn't make any sense at all. No, it's like, okay, your job is to figure out how to survive in this classroom. Well, actually, I'm only six years old. (laughs) That doesn't really work. And so right there, it's like, what is the culture climate? You know, what is the adult pieces? And then larger than that, you know, are these systems, whether it be school policy or government policy, as you saw in America, the policy of detaining children at borders and separating from their parents, not informed by science. It's like who in their right mind thinks that's- Would ever, would ever have thought that was a good idea. It's mind-blowing when you really, it's heart-wrenching and mind-blowing and dangerous. And so- if like, if you think about it, if we have a government or a society that allows for that to happen, all that gets infiltrated, right, into that immune system of that country. Mm-hmm. And that shifts the way people think and it, then it goes all the way to that, in that classroom. And so, you know, using a systems way of thinking, it's from micro to macro. Mm-hmm. And I think what we all have to figure out is how do we penetrate all levels of the ecosystem In some ways, Mark, I think that's actually happening. And, you know, for educators to say, we watch our children and and we know that well-being, we know emotional intelligence is really important for them. That's only going to get so much play because you have parents that are looking for something in the education system for their children. You've got business, et cetera. One of the things that I think we really have going for us now is what you alluded to, that business and industry is actually saying these are skills, social emotional skills are some of the key skills that we have, that we need to have, not only in the hires that we have that are going on to leadership positions, but for the people that, you know, our our work is done in teams. People have to have those kinds of skills to be able to have their own emotional intelligence and to be able to interact with others. So the the individual and and the collective. And that's where I think we've got a real opportunity now because you have, I'm going to say the education system or much of the education system intuitively knew that well-being of children is important for learning. You've got business and industry are saying that it's no longer just the technical skills. We can teach those skills when they're in our workplace. They have to have some foundations, literacy, numeracy, and technology. But in general, they need to have social emotional learning with that. And then you're having parents that, two things. They're hearing that for their child to be successful on a career path, that that's going to be something that's important. And they've also had the opportunity to have their children in their homes and watch them in their learning in Mm -hmm. a very different environment. So I almost think we're at, you know, we're at a place where this could really take hold and it could be scalable and widespread, which I think, you know, in the past, we've had trouble convincing. And then you're getting it from across the breadth and the policymakers have to kind of follow suit, right? Yeah, I think that's, you're 100% right. And I'm, 
as my mother would say, from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's high praise. <laughs> Mark, some of the things that uh, I like to highlight on these podcasts is where have you seen some incredible practice? And I remember you mentioning or reading something where you were talking about it, how the state of Connecticut had decided to offer, you had created kind of a a number of modules Mm -hmm. on social emotional learning, on emotional intelligence, uh, permission to feel and that they were offering them for free to any educator within the state. Tell me about, this is, you know, obviously months later, tell me about how that's gone. Well, importantly, it's now available for anyone across the world for free. Wonderful. Uh, Yeah, so it's on Coursera, um, which is a platform that many people know about. And the title of the course is Managing Emotions During Uncertain and Stressful Times. And so it's a 10-hour asynchronous course to really just help people through these difficult times with culturally responsive, helpful strategies to manage their own emotions, the adults, and help kids manage theirs. That course will be available until December 2021 for free. Wonderful. And so far, we've had well over 75,000 educators take the course, and it's spreading. We get a couple thousand new teachers every week. Yeah. So it's been very, very exciting. And it's, you know, it's not the whole systemic model we've built for schools, but we just felt it was really our obligation to give people strategies to help them kind of deal with these difficult times. And you know what, Mark, you know, when those things are available for free and teachers know that they have access to them, sometimes that starts a rumble from the bottom up, right? You end up at the school that for whatever reason, a couple of teachers have gotten connected to that. And pretty soon, you know, when they're having a professional learning session in their school, they're talking to the principal about it. And and pretty soon you have a whole school that says, wow, 10 hours, that's feasible. We can do that as as part of our school improvement plan. Mm -hmm. And we can all engage in that. And suddenly then you have enough of of an infiltration, shall we say, that it can actually spread and have an impact on the culture of that entire school. And similarly at the district level or at the state Mm -hmm. or provincial level, if there's talk about it and you get enough individuals that are interested in that, then suddenly there's the impetus for that district level to be saying, hey, this is something that we're recommending that, uh, you know, our schools take this seriously and they use it as one of the many pieces to help them get to a place where they can create that culture. 100%. And in Connecticut, that's what we did. We partnered. We, we really were strategic about this. We partnered with the Superintendents Association of the state. Yes. We partnered with the Department of Education. We partnered with the teachers unions. There's two of them, the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, and the CEA, or the NEA, the National Education Association, the Connecticut version of that. We got the Commissioner of Children and Families on board. We got the state legislators on board. We worked with the news stations, and we did stuff on television, the newspapers. We had philanthropists involved, like everybody. And it made a big difference. It makes a big difference in two ways, Mark. First of all, your chance of success, you're never going to have success if you only have one of those groups working by themselves. It just it just can't happen. And the second thing, so from a success and a sustainability, having all those connected means that that has a chance of happening. The second thing is the spread because you're going, you know, within the education sector, you're going everything from teacher unions to supervisory officers to the policymakers at the state level, you've got that covered. 
in addition to that, if you're going into the health and social systems that are in the state, then you've got that piece, you know, potentially business and industry, families hearing about that because it's being communicated so often through the media. That's how you have the spread, right? You know, when I think about what we need to do a better job of in K-12 is to be part of those policy conversations and to have the spread happening. I don't think that would have happened for our team five or 10 years ago, but so much of this work is about building relationships. Yes. And so having the trust, they trusted us to put this out there and they trusted us to create it. I did a great podcast with uh, Pasi Selberg, an amazing academic out of Finland. And uh, he's just written a book and it's called In, In Teachers We Trust. And the whole book is premised on why has the Finnish education system been successful is because there's a culture of trust in that country. And so as I was reading through it at first, I thought, well, this is wonderful. But, you know, do people that are not from countries that necessarily have that huge amount of trust, are they actually kind of looking and thinking, well, gee, you know, that's great, but it's just making me sad that I'm not living in a country that necessarily has that. But the second part of the book talks about strategies that can be used to build that trust. The kinds of things that you're talking about, you had the trust. And during the work that you're doing with those groups, you're building more trust. And so, you know, you haven't just created a situation where that 10-hour modules course is available and people are engaging it, but you're also building the foundational trust that will allow you and those different groups to do other kinds of work together. As a matter of fact, what happened, just coincidentally, is that one of the missing pieces, we included them in our model, but they wanted more, was school nurses. So now we're doing something special for all the nurses of the state of Connecticut, you know, because they experienced the pandemic in a different way than educators did. They didn't have jobs working in school, so they got placed in hospitals. And so applying that to the nurse's lens can be really, wasn't just a natural side effect of having, you know, these relationships. If our real goal is to help our kids be in a place where they can actually make this world a better place, the only way that you can do that is that interdisciplinary approach, because we'll never have the scalability within any one of our sectors separately. But by having that trust building on some of these kinds of initiatives, you get that connectivity across the sectors, and that's where you're going to have full-scale change. When you talk about what you've done with educators and teachers having access to those modules, and now the nurses, and those nurses, they're working in our schools, but they're also going back to hospitals and to mm -hmm. clinics and to families, and they're making those connections. And that's where you're getting that spread, right? It's very hopeful. Yeah, and having the family component critically important. Parents are dying for these strategies too, and kids spend a significant part of their development right at home. And so it's funny because, you know, what you're making me think about is a kind of the evolution of this work. So I started my work in schools. My interest came from my relationship with my uncle, who was this just incredible educator who I dedicated my book to and wrote about, Uncle Marvin. Mark, you, you wrote that so well in the book and in some of the blogs that you've done, et cetera, since I actually kind of feel like I know Uncle Marvin. And, you know, many of us are fortunate that we had someone like an Uncle Marvin, but I feel like I know him. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. You know, you know how when he's no longer here, so once in a while, like you just, you know, you're walking in your home or you're giving a speech or you're reading something and then you just like feel their presence, you know? Mm -hmm. And so Uncle Marvin was a middle school teacher. And 
you know, we started doing this work in middle schools because that's where I was bullied a lot and hated school and didn't do well. And I thought everybody was going to be like Uncle Marvin. And it didn't happen because back when we first started this work, there was a lot of, there's a lot of phobia, you know, around talking about feelings. And then we realized, okay, we got to work with teachers. And then we had more success, but then leaders would say things like, I'll never forget, I was in this one school and the teacher said to me, you know, Mark, uh, this is great stuff, but we've already been told that we can't implement any of this stuff until after the tests in May. I'm like, in May, it's August. What the heck am I doing here right now? And so that wasn't cool. And I'm like, all right, we got to work with the leaders. And we had more success. You know, we were trying, we were starting to do work in like New York City public schools, you know, 1800 schools, five boroughs, 1.1 million children, 100,000 kids living in temporary housing or homeless. And I'm like, this school by school model is like not going to work. There's no sustainability here. So we've got to think systems level. We've got to get the chancellors and the superintendents on board. And you know this because that's what you did. And so what I found was that when someone like you as a superintendent really believes in this stuff and you actually go through the training yourself and talk about its impact on your life, all of a sudden the principals listen. And then the principals have that experience and they want to talk about it. And then the principal teachers listen and the teachers do and the kids want it and then parents do it. And so truthfully, I started this work very, very naive. I was just a naive person who wanted to help kids. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize until I, you know, finished my doctorate and ran around hundreds of schools trying to have quality implementation. It really had very little to do with the kids, right? It had to do with everybody who's surrounding the kids and the systems that are surrounding kids. And so we're still trying, you know, we're still learning. What I've learned, Mark, in my career is that for any initiative to actually take hold, Every player in the organization needs to see their roles. The roles are different, but everybody has to have a connection to it. And when everybody does, when the student can talk about it, when the teachers are actively engaged in it, when the principal is organizing professional learning to have those discussions and really highlights it, when the district sets out communications and policies that reflect that, when every single player has a role to play, parents connected, it doesn't matter what the initiative is, it takes hold. And, you know, this is a classic example of the more we can get people talking about it, the more we have thought leadership that talks about this. These are the kinds of things that will make a difference as far as scalability. Well, and what's unique in going back to like the cognitive thing that I was talking about earlier in the social emotional thing mm -hmm. is that you know, when you were a superintendent, probably you weren't an expert in physics and math and, and other science areas and literature and language arts and social studies, right? You had your area of expertise and you knew obviously things. And so we don't have the expectation for every teacher in every school to have all content knowledge of every area. Of course not. With social and emotional learning, it's different. Everybody's got to do it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when, when I was a program superintendent and in Ontario at the time, we did a big push on literacy and really trying to have children right from the very early stages of developing oral communication all the way into high school, that we weren't looking at literacy as 
children learning how to read in grades one and two. It was really what needs to happen from a, the, the developmental stages of a four-year-old all the way to an 18-year-old. And, you know, we started off with, it was more, I'm going to say mechanical. And the deeper we got into it, we were really transferring into what engages students and the whole emotional piece, the whole cultural identity within the work that they were doing, et cetera. And those ended up being foundational pieces in how to read, how to comprehend, how to express orally, et cetera. And so when the system started to open itself to this idea of well-being, what we tried to do within our system was really say, we've already started that journey because we were looking at academics and we were looking at literacy and numeracy and we were trying to get top-notch instruction. We knew that the top-notch instruction was a combination of the pedagogical or the content knowledge of the particular subject area, but the pedagogical underpinnings had to be based on that child having a sense of who they were, who she or he was, that child being able to connect, to, to be in an environment, all of those things ended up being foundational pieces. And when we shifted to kind of say, okay, let's talk about academic skills and social emotional skills, we had already started them on the cognitive side. And so that helped. And, you know, we just have to keep talking about that, that people realize that it's not an either and or. You're not walking away from academic or cognitive learning. You're actually reinforcing it. You're giving it the building blocks so that children can actually grab onto that. And the only other thing I'd mention, Mark, is that we had a really interesting conversation between elementary and secondary, mm -hmm. because the misunderstanding is kind of, well, that should be looked after in the elementary and the primary grades. And by the time we're in secondary, you know, it's content, content. And we had amazing secondary people that said, you know, we know that and we want to go deeper into that. And they gave descriptions of how they were building those foundational pieces in the secondary schools that were phenomenal and inspiring to the elementary people because they didn't even realize that that was happening in our secondary schools. So, you know, there's lots of pieces there, but it's so hopeful. It is a couple of things that you're making me think about. The first is that this is life's work, period. Mm -hmm. Because you can't make predictions about your life. You know, like none of us could have predicted the pandemic. I couldn't have predicted that my mother would die of pancreatic cancer when I was very young. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd have only a few months to like say goodbye. Just there's so many things that are unknown and we're terrible about predicting our feelings in, in the future. Right. And so, you know, if you would have said to me, Mark, like if a pandemic hits, how are you going to deal with it? I'd be like, oh gosh, I have 25 years as an emotion scientist. It's going to be fine. And then you drop me into the pandemic and I'm like a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Like, wait a minute, like, because you don't know what you don't know until you're in it. And that's why it's like constant practice. I think the second thing that you made me think about, which also I think is the beauty, but also the difficulty with doing the work with emotional intelligence and social emotional learning is that oftentimes, not always, in traditional academics, there's a criterion of correctness, you know, like, the math test, it's just, you, you, get a, you get points off for making mistakes. You really can't treat emotion management that way. You know, it's like, it's not fair, number one. But number two is given my background, meaning my race or my culture, given my age, given my personality, given my gender identity, et cetera, like what might work best for me may not work best for you for all emotions, right? So like, 
when I'm anxious, some people are prone to want to speak to people to help them problem solve. Some people want to journal and there's no right or wrong. And I think that makes it really difficult to teach oftentimes because you're looking for the right answer. You know, I, I give this talk once to police officers and God bless police officers. They do a very important work. And the police officer goes, you know, Mark, all interesting stuff, but just give come on. What's the best strategy? Right. And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, I, I need you to tell me, Mark, what is your, well, for me, it's like positive self-talk. He's like, that's the one I'm learning. And that's the one I'm teaching everybody in my family. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I wish it was that easy. Right. You know, cause sometimes there's nobody to talk to Then What do you do? Right. Sometimes someone's not going to want that strategy and there's going to be eight others that would work better. Exactly. And so I think it's the beauty of the work. It's what makes it creative, mm -hmm. but it's also what makes it really difficult because then how do you evaluate the learning? And somebody, you know, in, in the field, as many of you know, and you in particular, assessment, right? Assessment. We need the assessment. We need to show that kids are growing in the skill. And so we've been working on that in our center for three years now. And it's proving to be possible, but really complicated because we don't want, oh, that kid never uses that strategy. They're bad. Exactly. And you know what? I've been very passionately connected to this whole idea of social emotional learning and the, the work that we're doing through Karanga, the Global Alliance for Social Emotional Learning. And it's a real paradox because on the one hand, you want to be able to do assessment to be thinking about where are kids now and how can we support them? Where is the system and how can we support the system at getting better of building conditions where students can thrive in our classrooms? And, you know, a comment that I've made publicly a number of times, including out to principals and teachers in my district, was we never want to walk down the line where we hear a child talking to another child and saying, I got 3.2 on empathy. What did you get? Mm -hmm. You know, it's the antithesis of where we want to go. It's a, it's a bit of a catch-22 because on the one hand, we want to be describing, we want to be learning, we want to be able to say, this is where we think kids are and this is how we can help them. On the other hand, we don't want to make the same mistakes with measuring social emotional skills that we did with measuring cognitive skills. So, you know, what I think is beyond the science of measurement, we really have to be working with policymakers and with leaders to talk about how will you talk about, how will you use this information? How will you communicate it? How will you report it out? How do you actually make sure that the way that you're doing that actually helps us do better things for kids as opposed to doing and making the same mistakes that in many jurisdictions were made with measurement of academic skills? It's a big challenge and it'll keep us all busy for a long time. It is, but it's an important one to always have front and center because the worst thing that can happen is for someone who doesn't have knowledge or skills in a space like emotion regulation to be punished for it. We're hard enough on ourselves. And like, you know, I still, I'm pretty good at this stuff, but there are days that are better and worse. I, I think I was born with a rumination gene, you know, and there's some days I just like, Mark, you know, reappraise, reappraise, or get in the hot air balloon and look down at other things in your life that are going well. And I struggle with doing it. You know what, Mark, you can tell that your sector is having an impact because 
educators wouldn't have known to think about that before. And now, you know, when I was walking through classrooms or talking with principals, I would hear people talk about the concepts of self-regulation being an end step that can only come after co-regulation and that developmental process. And that, that, you know, where you have some children where five or six years old, they're moving into that self-regulation. Others, uh, because of trauma, because of life circumstances, they might not be developing that until they're 15 years old or 25 years old or 40 years old. So I think in general, you know, one of the things that I can say is that there's more interaction between the two sectors and people like you are helping make it understandable to people in the education sector. So that's a pretty positive place to be. Yeah. I mean, anything I can do to help validate that feelings matter and support people in implementing this work with quality and fidelity, with long-term thinking, you know, and sustainability at the forefront. As emotion scientists and not as emotion judges, the happier I'll be. Super fun. Mark, one last closing comment. What's next for you? You've done such incredible work and uh, contributed so much to our, our education sectors. What's next for you? So I think two things. One is like going deeper and having greater impact long-term sustainability. And then the second is I really, my next project is taking one chapter of my book, which is on emotion regulation and really fleshing that out better because I feel like people are hungry for the strategies. And I think people want to know the why behind the strategies. Like, why do I take a deep breath? And why do I need to like reappraise? Or why do I need to go for that walk? Or why, 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 why? And so I want to just like, pull all the science together and help people really think about like a holistic model for healthy emotion management across their lifespan. And so the next year of my life, I'm going to be spending a lot of time kind of unpacking that. Nice. Well, Mark, I know that uh, when you've been on a round table, when you were in the past podcast, that I had all sorts of people that were saying, yeah, we'd love to hear more from Mark. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much and uh, take care. Thank you. Thanks once again to Mark for the approachable manner in which he talks about child psychology, child development, and emotional intelligence. His willingness to share personal stories reminds us as educators that we all have Mark brackets in our classrooms and that these students desperately need a learning environment that gives them permission to feel. Once again, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy a recent roundtable where Mark appeared as a panelist alongside child psychiatrist Dr. Jean Clinton, where they discussed searching for well-being in challenging times. You can find this roundtable on the Knowledge Signature Leadership Portal. Our next episode will feature Santiago Rincón Gallardo talking about his book, Liberating Learning, Educational Change as Social Movement. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.